seated. We're going to do communion here this morning. Um, for those of you who are here all the time, you already know what I'm going to say, but for those of you who it's your first time, get ready for a treat. Communion to me is a significant time because of this. This is the time that we set aside to remember who Jesus is and the sacrifice he made. This is not our salvation. This is not our membership. This is not our belonging to something. This is an invitation to come and recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And because of that, I don't require you to be a member here. I don't require you to do anything other than have a heart that says, I want to know who God is. And in that process, we're all on a journey. And some of you are much farther than I am, and some of you maybe think, oh, I'm not even worthy to be in here. But that's the beauty of it. None of us are worthy. And it's the lie that we tell ourselves that says, well, I can come because I've done this or that. And that's what keeps us feeling like there's this gap between us and Jesus. When we recognize that I'm not worthy, that I'm a sinner, but I desperately need hope. I desperately need a Savior. When we recognize and admit that, that's what allows us to move forward. And What's funny about this, to me, this should be the most gathering thing in all of the church. And yet, it's one of the most divisive issues throughout the history of the church. How you do it, when you do it, who can give it. Entire church organizations have split over who's allowed to serve this to other people. And yet, it's designed to be the most unifying thing we have. Let's come together today to receive. Nobody's required to, but everybody's invited to. Nobody's better than somebody else because they do or they don't. We're all equal, but we're all allowed to come to his table, to come to the altar, to say, I'm a sinner and I desperately need something to unify me with a holy God. So let me just invite you. Here's kind of how we'll do it here. Um, Again, it's an open table. Everyone that's in this room is invited. James will be over here and he'll have one. I'll have one. Uh, Tracy is going to go. If you are gluten-free, line up in the middle line. That's Tracy's. If you are not able to come forward for any reason, Tracy will come to you first. But if you're gluten-free, don't take off. Just line up in the middle. And then even if you're not, once everybody's been served that can't make it up front, she'll be back here. So if you, for any reason, can't come to the front, you say, I'm just not worthy. I can't walk up there, but you're still willing to take, hold your hand up and we'll serve you. If you're not physically able, emotionally or spiritually able to come forward, we still want to serve you. So we're going to go ahead and serve now. And I just want to invite you to come, partake and participate. Because it's not for the chosen few. It's for all who are willing to come to the altar.
says I'm working. I could be, I don't know. Check, check, check. Oh, man. If you know me at all, I can stand up and talk in front of 5,000 people and not blink an eye, but this, this drives me crazy. All right. So last week, we talked about David, and David desires to build a temple, but we're told in Scripture he doesn't get to because he shed too much blood. Because of the bloodshed, because of his history of war, because of what he's done, the privilege is passed on to his son. David is disappointed, but the beauty of it is he doesn't allow his disappointment to stand between him and his passion. And what he does is he realizes he doesn't get to build the temple, but it's more than building the temple. And he spends the rest of his life collecting materials to build the temple says the kings in the neighboring and surrounding areas sent him materials, mainly because they're afraid if we don't give them to him, he's just going to come and take them. So let's just give them to him. That's the reputation of war that David has. And we talked a little bit about the fact that promises were held true, not just to David, but to generations. Solomon, David's son, is going to get to build the temple. And to David, that's just as valid as if he were doing it himself. It's just as important. It's just as important that we lay a foundation for the future as it is that we walk today. It's just as important that we recognize and see that God has a plan and a purpose for each of us, but that purpose and plan needs to go beyond our simple existence here and carry on because as we take the truth and reality of the message, that takes the kingdom of God forward to the next generation. So we're going to pick up today in in Chronicles chapter 2. And Solomon goes to Gibeon, where if you're at the beginning of of 2 Chronicles, um, Solomon goes to Gibeon, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, It's really more being stored than being used. And they talk about how it's there, but the people don't want to travel there to worship. So they've got it there, and they've got it in the permanent temple that they've been using. But the people aren't going. But Solomon goes, as he begins the process, and he sacrifices. And it says he sacrifices, basically, a thousand animals on it to reestablish a covenant with God. And God comes and says, what do you wish? What do you want from me? And Solomon asks for wisdom, and God honors Solomon's request And it says, but because he asked for wisdom, he got so much more. And so he begins building the temple. And it is a process, but he begins this process. And as he does this, the building of the temple, he starts by getting tradesmen and getting the best in the kingdom and woodcutters and carvers and stonecutters. And he begins to gather all these needed supplies gold, precious stones, um, talks about the skins of animals that they need. It takes about 20 to 30 sheep to make one copy of the Old Testament. And it says that they had scrolls upon scrolls in the temple. 
And Solomon, being king of the kingdom, technically owns everything, but he doesn't take anything. He sends out his people and he pays them and they work for it. Because to him, it's something worth investing in. It's something worth putting time and energy and effort into. And it's been promised, and yet, at the same time, he sees that he has a role in it. How many times do we believe that God has promised something to us, but we've not taken an active role in seeing what that looks like? What is God calling me to do? A few weeks back, I talked about how God may be asking you to give something up that other people get to do. God may be asking you to sacrifice something. It's okay for the person on your left and your right, but he's looking at you and saying, if you're going to follow me, you can't do this. We talked a few months back about how David goes and he wants to make a sacrifice for the Lord and the king that's there says, here, take these. And he looks and he says, I won't give a sacrifice that costs me nothing. So after the battle that he just won, he takes money out of his own personal wealth and gives it to this other man and says, let me buy these. And they cut up the yoke that led the oxen to make a fire and he sacrifices before God. I think there's something in there for us. It's supposed to be a sacrifice to see what God wants to do in us and through us. We're supposed to give something. It's supposed to cost us something. And we're in such a society that says, everything needs to be now, everything needs to be instant, and everything needs to make me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, I'm walking out the door. I can't tell you how many people I've known, people I've genuinely loved and had a relationship with, that have walked out the door, not just now, but over the last 25 years that I've been in ministry, I've watched people walk out the door because they weren't happy with something going on in the church. I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about somebody who has a genuine problem with somebody's interpretation of Scripture. They're just not happy. They're just busy. Life is so busy. So life, it's supposed to be busy. It's your one life. You should fill it every moment. It should be great. But it doesn't mean that it's all happiness. Now, does that mean we don't find joy? I I did a series on the fruit of the Spirit a few months back, and I told you that there's a difference between joy and happiness. And when we confuse the two, then anything that doesn't bring me happiness and pleasure right now is not good, and I'm just going to throw it out. And if it's not giving me what I want, then I'm not. Joy is a state of being that it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, I'm still going to choose to live a certain way. Happy means I get a meal that comes with a toy. (laughs) Subtle difference. Subtle difference. But that's what we've been ingrained to believe. That I get the meal with the toy, and if I don't get the meal with the toy, if I don't get my way, I'm gone. And I've told you the danger in our current generation of people that are younger is not that they're not good or that they're lazy. I don't believe that. I think that they have passions for different things, but here is a danger. It's a danger in the fact that they don't like what the church is doing, and so I'm leaving it. Type in the term exvangelical into Google and watch how many thousands, literally thousands of articles come up about people that have left the evangelical church because it's no good anymore. They have their own term now. And I always go back to something my dad told me when I didn't make the Little League team one year. 
that was back in the days where just because you signed up didn't mean you were on the team. And just because you were on the team also did not mean you were playing. Both of those things were true. And I didn't make the team, and it was the only year I didn't make the team, and after the first week of practice, a kid broke their ankle, and they called me and said, you're in! <laughs> and I told my dad, I don't even want to play. And he looked, he said, you'll never get it bad if you don't get on the team. And I was so angry. How could they reject me and now ask me to save them? <laughs> but, much like Jesus, I made the sacrifice. <laughs> I joined the team, and it ended up being a, a year where I had probably my best batting average I ever had, probably because it wasn't all in my head. And I came and I became part of the team. If you're tired of church and its failings, don't go outside the walls and yell and scream and throw stones. You're not going to change anything. You're going to change when you come in and you make sacrifices. And you're not going to always get your way. But isn't it better that we don't always get our way, but that as a whole, we grow and we're challenged and we're inspired and we move forward? And by the way, if you're thinking of leaving here, that's not, this is not a effort to keep you here. I've told you before, I love you, I'm glad you're here, but if you go because there's another church, I'm not chasing you. Somebody told me once, I thought the good shepherd went after a sheep, and I was like, yes, but not when they just move from one pasture to another. You let them go to the other pasture. Go, feed there, go ahead. It'll be good for you. But the reality is, I think too many of us, and I'll include myself in that, We want all these things, but we don't want to sacrifice. We want it all, and we want it now. I talked last week about how people currently graduating college believe they should be in the top 20% of their income level when they graduate. And I was like, doesn't leave much room for growth, does it? But that's what 91% of college graduates believe they should be making 80% of whatever the top paid person is when they graduate college. When asked, how much should you make compared to the top? So we want it, and we want it now, and we want our instant success. And I want to get my 25-year pin after one year because I want that gold watch. And we want it, and yet Solomon takes 20 years to do this. And it's 20 years of his reign, and they gathered materials And they got stuff together and they sent people to cut wood and to cut stones and to gather these things. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, by the way, we're going to get to chapter 6, which is where I'm going to read our text from today. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, the ark is brought in. The significance is the dedication goes beyond simply an event and it becomes the fulfillment of a promise and the foreshadowing of what is yet to come. It's two things. It's the fulfillment of the fact that this was promised that we were going to get to do this, and yet it's the foreshadowing of all that is yet to come. It's a sign of the covenant made with the people regarding God's presence with them. Remember, they view the Ark of the Covenant as the very place where God's presence rests. And when they bring it in and they set it down, They have these giant statues of cherubims, kind of angels, that they set it under. And basically it dwarfs it. The the statues dwarf it in comparison. That's how large the temple was at this point. And they set this little ark down. And some of you are like, the ark? I thought that was just an Indiana Jones thing. Nope, real thing. Actually existed. They carry it on these long poles. They bring it in. They set it down. And they realize God's presence is back 
where it always was supposed to be in the middle and in the midst of the people. God's presence had never gone away, but it was somewhere else, and they didn't go see it, and they didn't experience it. And it's the same thing is true for us. How many of us have really had a deep encounter with God, and we know that God has been there and real and alive and changing us, but then we don't feel it a few weeks later, a few months later. The next thing you know, where we've walked away, and we haven't walked away from God, but it's not the same experience. And I used to tell students all the time, God is not supposed to be a feeling, and yet at the same time, it is supposed to be a relationship. But relationship works best when you're in communication with each other, not when you go, well, that was great, but I'm going to leave that behind. I tell people all the time, when God does something in your life at that moment, write it down. Because there will come a time, there will come a moment, there will come a place where you are going to doubt and you are going to struggle and you are going to question and you've got to be able to look back and go God was real in this moment in this midst and maybe I've grown and maybe I've changed and maybe my thought processes has evolved and maybe this is different but nonetheless the same God who did it then is faithful to do it now and he's faithful to do it tomorrow and he's faithful to do it next week And a month ago, when I was sitting and saying, God, what about this? What about this? What about this? In the midst of a series of worry, God says to me, do you trust me or don't you? I just thought it was ironic that it's in the middle of a series when I'm preaching about not worrying and not being overwhelmed by the weight of this world that God confronts me again and says, do you trust me or don't you? And I have to make that decision in that moment. And it was so easy for me to just be outraged about everything that was wrong. But I need to trust him. Last Sunday, we got some family news, and I'm sitting saying, God, I don't understand everything you're doing. I don't understand what's going on. And yet at the same time, in the midst of it, I got to know that God is faithful. God is going to see us through. God is going to love us. And God has blessed us. And my niece is going to have a baby. My niece dropped out of high school earlier this year and has just struggled to make some choices and decisions in her life. And this is our news that we get this week. And I'm frustrated with her and I'm frustrated with the situation and I feel bad for my sister and brother-in-law and all I can come back to is, But God is faithful, and he sees this child. And I celebrate, and I got a card for her, and we got a gift card. And we tell her, we love you. What do you need, and what can we do? Because though my situation seems daunting, God's promise is faithful and true, that he has a plan and a purpose for her life. And even though I'm saying, but God, she's done this and this and this, and it's been one bad decision after another, He's looking and saying, but do you trust me to fulfill what I have called and set her apart to do? Or is this just too overwhelming? Now she's got to make decisions and choices and she's got to choose what she's going to do next with her life. But I've got to love her and believe that God has a plan and a purpose. Second Chronicles chapter 6, starting at verse 3, tells us this. Then the king turned, and that's Solomon is the king, around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel with all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, 
I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there forever. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now, it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build that temple, but your son... Who will, from your, who, come, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. Verse 10. For the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with the children of Israel. Inside that ark was the Ten Commandments. That's what he's referring to when it says the covenant of the Lord. If you haven't yet, I would encourage you to go on a couple weeks ago, I said in my weekly email, read chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 for this series. If you haven't done so, I'd encourage you to at least read through the rest of chapter 6 this week. Next week, Pastor James is going to be speaking, and his text is coming mainly from 7 and 8. Here's a few things the text shows us before we're done today. Number one, it begins with a blessing of the people by the king. Look for a leader who blesses you, not one that seeks blessing. He thanks God. Seek a leader who recognizes who God is and that all things come from God. Second thing the text shows us. God shows a place, and that is in verse 6, but man has to follow what God instructed in order for the promise to be fulfilled. In our lives, we're called to follow, but following does not always come easy. Years ago, I was... uh, on a, a, a hike, I was out in the woods and on a hike, and I was told that there was this waterfall, and we get to the end of the trail, and there's no waterfall. But you can kind of see there's still a little winding trail, but the real, real easy trail, the paved part, was done. So we start walking down it, and we go a little farther, and then it starts really getting thick. But there's supposed to be a waterfall. Anyway, after another 45 minutes or an hour, we finally come to this waterfall. It's this long series of waterfalls, and it's beautiful. And once you kind of get through there, what we discovered is we were not actually on the path that takes you to the waterfall. (laughs) But obviously we hadn't been the first people that walked the wrong path because you get to the end of the path, and there's there's a... On our way out, we followed the other path back around, and it takes you right out to the other side of the parking lot. (laughs) Here's the deal. Sometimes the path we go down isn't the one that was necessarily the easiest or the best or the most convenient. But the promise was still there at the end. Sometimes we choose the rough path, but it doesn't mean that God's not there in the midst. Let's not start believing that because there's not the, you know, lighted yellow brick road, that God isn't still working. Because even on the yellow brick road, there were challenges that they faced. Third thing, God always fulfills his word. Not always in our time, not always in the way we picture it, not always the way we want, and sometimes, even when it's done, you look back and you go, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it would look like, but I'm really glad I'm here. This isn't at all what I expected, but I'm glad that God saw me through this. 
oftentimes our attitude can determine whether or not we can see that. So if you read on through the remainder of the chapter of Second Chronicles chapter 6, the remainder of the chapter is a prayer, and it's significant because the prayers, they're not for bless us as a nation, make us rich, let this, it's prayers for the presence of God to remain in that place. It's prayers for the presence of God. And what a beautiful picture that is. Instead of spending our time praying for what we need and what we want, to pray for the presence of God to come and to move. The presence of God to be with me, to challenge me, to make me more like him. Because once I'm more like him, maybe I'll be more attuned to what he's actually doing. There's a portion in the prayer regarding the thankfulness to God for how far they've come. It includes a whole section on confession. Verses 24 through 31 is all about confession. Prayers for foreigners who come into Israel to seek and seek to worship God. Wow. Prayers not just for his people, but for other people, that they would see God through the way we live our lives and that they would be drawn here. Supplication for when the people walk away for the Lord, that he might be merciful to them and bring them back. Because Solomon knows people are going to walk away. Because if it's not happening right now, if it's not shiny, if it's not making me feel happy, I'm going to walk away. And he prays for those that are going to walk away to come back. That's all verses 34 through 39. And prayer, again, he closes it out with this, for God to go back to his resting place, but to remember his people. God, as you go back into heaven, back into the resting place, don't forget us. Knowing that they've established a place where God can come and his presence can be and it can move. And I think oftentimes in our life, the reason God doesn't move more is we don't give him any room to. We don't give him any room to move in our lives because we have a certain expectation of what it's going to look like And if it doesn't look like that, then it can't be God. And we have a certain time frame, and if it doesn't fit in this time, then it can't really be God. And we do this over and over and over. And yet he's looking at us and saying, make room for me. Make room for my presence. Let me work in you and through you. I've got a plan and a purpose for you greater than what you can imagine. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful idea that God wants to give us his presence He wants to fulfill that promise in us. But we've got to make room so that he can do that. Here are a few final thoughts I have. When something's been 20 years in the making, it becomes more significant when it's completed. They spent 20 years building this place. I can't imagine spending 20 years working on a building project. There's some, uh, a school going up by our house, a new elementary school. My wife and I have had several debates. I believe they're going to get it done in time. My wife does not think they will. <laughs> We're going back. I'm like, no, they know what they're doing. And she's like, they may know what they're doing, but they don't do it fast enough. <laughs> and we're watching. And when the fi- groundbreaking finally occurred, and I don't mean just like there were a bunch of people out there one day with shovels taking pictures. I mean the actual like heavy equipment. I'm like, see, they're working. She's like, not enough time. I believe that there will be a celebration when that school is complete. And I believe that when it's done, it's going to be great. 
It's going to bring a school to my neighborhood. It's going to bring life and vibrancy. If you know me at all, I act like I don't like kids, but I really do like kids. I like them a lot. I act like I'm the grumpy old guy, but I'm also the guy who slips them a quarter and says, go buy a gumball. 20 years in the making, 20 years in the building. And now it's time to celebrate. Another thought I had is believing in something and actually seeing the results are two different things. Moses led the people for years. Most of his lifetime was spent leading these people. And he never goes into the promised land. But he never calls it a failure. He talks about how he's not worthy, but he never calls it a failure. David's promised to build the temple. He has this passion, this desire. He never gets mad at God that God says, no, you were a man of war, and I need a man of peace to build this. And David's never angry. David says, then let me start collecting stuff. The people of the Old Testament waiting for the Messiah to come. The disciples waiting for Jesus' return. Never do you see writings of any of them angry that Jesus didn't come back at the end of their life. John's writings, as he's in isolation, he's been sent off to an island, and he's sitting there looking out his window, and not one moment does he go, and Jesus failed me. He continues to say, be anxious and prepared for his return. And he looks forward to going and spending time with him. It's no less real because not everybody experienced that event firsthand. Too often times people will say, well, I just don't believe everything in Scripture. And I'm like, okay. Because you weren't there, you can't believe it. I was never there to actually see George Washington. I don't know much about the Revolutionary War. I read three books about it. still don't feel like I'm an expert, even after three books. Trace and I saw a movie recently and talked about the history in the movie and said, we both have very vivid memories of living through the events and go, I guess I didn't realize we were in the midst of history. But just because my kids didn't live through it doesn't make it any less real as we talked with our son about the events and about what was going on and about what the world was like at that time. And someday he may have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren and they'll have no clue what we experienced or what we went through or even that we existed. But it makes it no less real. And just because we want things a certain way doesn't make it any less real when God does it a different way. As long as it's faithful to his nature, then we know that it came from God. Here are the questions that I asked as a result of this message. Number one, what promises do we believe God has made that we are still waiting to see completed in our own lives? Write it down. What has God promised you? You're saying, God, I believe you said this. Write it down and then continue to ask God, God, where are we at on this? What's going on here? 
Was this just something I wanted, or was this really something you promised? Number two, what preparations am I making to see this happen? Not am I going out and making something happen that is not in God's timing, but if he's promised I'm going to build the temple, am I cutting down the wood? Because the temple's going to take 20 years to build. Am I doing what he's called me to do to prepare for what he has for me? Maybe it's he's promised that your child's going to come into relationship with God. Am I sowing seeds of love? Or is every conversation with my child one of dissension and argument? Maybe he's promised other things in your life. Am I doing things to prepare and equip myself to be ready for those? Years ago, I read a book about Everest and um, the percentage of people that die on Everest and those who actually succeed. And they say, unless there's a fluke accident, which does happen, the ones who make it to the top are not necessarily the ones who spent the last year physically preparing. They say it's the ones who spent 10 years emotionally and thinking through preparing. They said they'd always rather get, instead of some guy who is the most physically fit, they'd rather have somebody who's done their part to get physically fit, but has spent years planning this and thinking about it. Because they say those are the people who, there's nothing that's going to stop them when they get to the top. And finally, what am I willing to sacrifice to see this completed? I've long had this dream of Tracy and I owning our own uh, retirement home. Not a retirement home, but a home where we can retire. <laughs> no, come on out. Come, come to my retirement home. <laughs> Just a place that... My wife likes hot and warm, and I love the woods of Wisconsin. So we've kind of, in our minds anyway, we have this, you know, it's all dream, and it might all be imagination, but kind of the, we'll, we'll spend most of the year one place and then I'll get like three months of pleasantness in Wisconsin when the three months of weather that are nice. And what does that look like? And how do we make that happen? And we're still 20 plus years from retiring. But I've begun to say, if we're going to do this, then we have to do this. If we're going to do A, then we have to do B. And squirreling a little extra money away in our retirement accounts so that hopefully someday we're able to see that happen. What are we willing to sacrifice today so that we can see something? That's what the long game's all about. If God has promised something, he's going to fulfill it. But there may be something on my part. There was a lot expected of both David and Solomon if they wanted to see this promise completed and fulfilled through them. Because it had not been done through them and it had been done through the next generation or 12 generations down the line, God would have still been faithful. He still would have fulfilled his promise. But if you want to see the promise that you believe God's given you, fulfilled in you and through you, there may be a sacrifice you have to make. There may be preparations you have to do. And what are you doing and what are you willing to do? If we're going to play the long game and believe that God is who he said he is, you've got to be willing to put in the time. Father God, I thank you for the congregation. 
of Gathering Place, and I thank you for those who are joining us today. God, may we know you and see you and understand you more. May we reflect you in all that we do. May we become a people who are marked by you and shown that we are set aside for something great. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Today is Veterans Day. I had actually didn't realize communion was going to take so long. I wanted to do it at the proper time. But if you uh, are an active or retired U.S. service member, would you stand up? I know some of you are. I just want to... I want to pray a blessing over our military. Go ahead and stand again. If they're around you, just kind of reach out towards them. I'm going to pray a blessing over our military members, both active and those that are retired, because I know that God has a... God has created us uniquely in a position, and though we may not agree with everything our government does, we're not called to. We are called to worship God and who he is. And I... As you know, I'm from a family of service people. My grandfather was a career service person. My brother-in-law is still currently active in the middle of 32 years in his career and doesn't have plans to step away. And so it hits close to home. I sent my brother-in-law a message this morning, kind of first thing this morning, just saying thank you because he's given 32 years of his life and these people have given years of their lives. So thank you. Go ahead and just reach out towards him. Father God, I thank you for every service person that's in our congregation. Lord, I pray just a special blessing of your presence and peace on them. May they see you and know you. Father God, I thank you that they were willing to to make the ultimate sacrifice, if need be, to protect and defend us and our right to be here today. For my right to say what I believe. And thank you, Father God, for those who are around the world. We pray for safety. I pray for wisdom and insight in military leadership. Father God, I pray that we would be able to get out of conflict, but that we would still be able to be a representative of who you are to the nations. And we thank you and praise you for all you do. In your name, amen. One of the most valuable things we can do is to never forget. My grandfather years ago told me that on Veterans Day, you don't say, Happy Veterans Day. You look at them and you say, Never forget. And that's what we say is never forget. Never forget the sacrifice that these people made and never forget the sacrifice that others are making so that a guy like me can be up here and say what he believes. Because without people willing to make that sacrifice, that freedom would not still exist. So thank you guys. Have a blessed day. I am away next week, but Pastor James is bringing his story about the long game. And I believe Tracy will be doing announcements, huh? So, so I hope that you'll join us next week. I'll be back in two weeks. See you then.